Welcome back to Production Music Demystified with Media Tracks Music, a microcast of Music Works. Music Works is sponsored by the Musicians' Union. I'm a member of the Musicians' Union. It's the trade union for musicians living and or working in the UK, and it's a community of 32,000 members working to protect musicians' rights and campaigning for a fairer industry, as well as campaigning to fix streaming and keep musicians working in the EU post-Brexit the union collectively bargains for musicians working in orchestras and theatres and sets minimum recommended rates for freelance musicians working in other sectors. Its expert staff provide contract advice, legal advice and assistance and a range of benefits and services to help musicians in every aspect of their work. Be part of something bigger and get the recognition you deserve. Join now at the MU.org. Hi Maria, thanks so much for joining us. Hi, Katie. It's a pleasure. It's really nice to be on this side of the podcast as well. Yeah, welcome to the, the screen side of the podcast. So <laughs> this is Maria Cecilia Ayalde Angel, a freelance sound engineer. And you are here to talk to us today, Maria, about um, recording and mixing for sync. Um, but as well as that, you're also a member of the team at Polyphony Arts and you've been working a lot with Media Tracks and who's, you know, Media Tracks and Polyphony Arts being the two partners on this podcast. So a really great and um, knowledgeable person to have to talk to us about this today. So thank you so much. Um, thank you, Katie. Would you like to start by telling us a bit about yourself and your career? Yeah, absolutely. So I am a sound engineer. I studied in Colombia back home and I've been working um, for a couple of years in live sound, but also in editing and mixing for sync. So I've worked with a couple of sound libraries and record labels such as um, media tracks as well. So I, I have a bit of experience on what we're looking for when we're mixing for sync, how the music is going to fit into the audiovisual, what aspects to keep an eye on, and well, definitely how to make the best of a recording with whatever budget you have. So that's, that's basically what we're going to talk about today. Perfect, brilliant. So um, we uh, we talked about this before the episode, didn't we? I know nothing about about mixing and recording whatsoever. So um, we're going to have a conversation between someone who knows about it and someone who doesn't, and hopefully that will strike <laughs> a nice balance for those of you listening who might be at different stages of knowledge and expertise, and um, you know have different questions about um, the various elements of this. So where shall we start? Shall we start with equipment. Is that a good place um, to start? Well, I think. The first step before equipment would be, well, the recording process and the mixing process is a chain and every mm -hmm. link depends on each other. But the first one and the most key one is where you are recording the space sure. that you have. Okay. And that's something that I would sometimes overlook and we think, oh, I'm just going to record I don't know, in my living room. And sometimes that can work, but sometimes you might have a window very close to you or in my case, the Seagull Central <laughs> next to your window. So the space to record is is key. Mm. And there are some, obviously, ideally you would record in a studio, but that requires a specific budget. You can make your own tricks and your own things to have the space you need. So I know uh, people sometimes pick a small room and use very thick blankets to kind of make it dry, to stop the, the reflections of the room to make it work, if that's what you want. Otherwise, if you want a really big reverb, like, wet space you can look for a hall or somewhere else that you can record but I think that would be the first one to really look for your acoustics mm. um yeah 
And what would be people, if, if anyone listening isn't sure what they're looking for in terms of acoustics, would that be something that was inherent in the type of music that you're wanting to produce or, you know? Definitely. Yeah. What I would say is always have a reference. And I, I guess that works also for composition and production. You have a reference of kind of where you want to be, have a reference of how you want to sound. But if you cannot have a choice, I would say the best thing is bring the cleanest recording you can because you can add effects on the post-production stage and the mixing while you cannot fix mistakes of recording that much sometimes we get things delivered being like oh it's going to be saved in post-production and we can do things but it's not magic <laughs> so yeah <laughs> sure absolutely great okay so space and um and then what what's next yeah and last not on space um egg cardboards that's a complete myth that uh. does not work that is just <laughs> for movies so forget about that one. Um, yeah. Well, I would say then it's uh, the equipment and how um, Helen Lyon said in the previous episode, which was brilliant. And if you haven't listened to it, go and check it out. Um, do research on everything you're going to buy because all these things come with features and really nice names and buttons and colors and they sound really appealing and they will try to convince you to get it. But not every time. The more features, the better. So we're prone to get, oh, I'm going to get an interface of eight channels because that seems better. However, think about what you're recording. Are you a solo artist? How many things are you going to be playing and recording at the same time? Perhaps it's just two instead of eight. So if you're going to record two, maybe you can invest on a better sounding interface with better preamps, for example, an Apollo Twin, except instead of a 16 channel, eight channel interface, that's just going to be maybe more channels but less quality same with what microphones you're going to use obviously if you have unlimited budget you can have a different microphone per every instrument you want to record but you can think how versatile do I want my microphone to be or am I just going to record vocals right so you can research all the tech specs and if you can go and make a test recording with a microphone see how your voice is captured there I've always heard oh this microphone the U87 is super good for vocals. Everyone loves it. My specific voice, I've tried it, sounds really sharp and thin on it. So I, I personally don't use it, but it might be. It's, it's a case of every instrument. Mm. So research before you invest on any equipment you want and try to be as versatile, I think, with the equipment you have. Yeah, and the, uh, the potential for something to work for other people and not for you is, is definitely there then. Definitely. I would say mm. if you really want to go for a versatile microphone that does everything, I guess it's not a secret, but the Shure SM57, that's like a go-to for everything, but you might want to test it out as well. Great. It's always so difficult, isn't it, with equipment? I, was, I remember when I was starting podcasting, I just really wanted someone to sit down with me and go, you just need this model of this, this model of this, this model of this. Um, and then that just wasn't really available. And then the more I've gone into it, the more I understand why. <laughs> exactly. So many options. And whatever you look online, every page is going to try to sell you something different. So mm. I think the best thing to do is go on forums where like actual sound engineers or actual musicians are discussing or get a friend. And the best thing is you yourself with your ears. If you can go to a shop and try it out, that would mm. be that would be the best, I think. Yeah, I do. Great. Okay, so we've done our space research. We've done our extensive uh, <laughs> equipment research. Absolutely, and you have your 
pretty good recorded tracks and you're ready to mix. Mm. So what I say, in my case, the first thing I do even before I hit play again is I organize my session and that's really, really key. I know a lot of people that are super strict about organizing, super people who aren't, but in my case, I feel it's very good to have a good visual organization, but also signal flow. And what I mean with this is we all have specific computers with a limited RAM and a limited capacity, and we want to make the best use of those computers. So if you have a really messy session that might be using the signal ineffectively, it could make your computer to start to be hung and collapse. Mm. So how I do it normally is I organize by the groups of instruments. Um, whatever order makes sense for you. In my case, I always start with drums and percussion because it has the wider frequency range. So you have a drum kit that has a kick that is really low frequencies. And you also have a crash, a splash, a hi-hat, which are in the 8,000 Hertz maybe. So when you have those, that big range of frequencies mixed and balanced, when you bring in the other instruments, it's not going to start fighting against frequencies. It's just going to complement and sit well. And then I move on with harmonic instruments like bass, pads, keys, guitar, um, and strings if you're doing anything orchestral. Then melodic instruments, maybe a flute, a lead guitar, vocals. And at the very end, I have my FX tracks. Um, each of these groups, if you are used to mixing and if you know a bit about all the um, DAWs that are, are there, I have a subgroup for each of these groups. So all my drums are going to an aux track. That is really helpful if when you're in an advanced stage of mixing, you want to, you say, oh, now the drums are a bit too loud in the chorus. And instead of going mic by microphone, you just take the group down. Or if you want to apply a general effect on your drums, whatever. And then at the very, very end, I have my FX tracks. This is very important to keep your computer alive. You don't want to put a reverb plugin on every channel because you're going to hit play and your computer is going to crash unless you have like a NASA level computer. So what I would recommend is pick one or two reverbs or delay or whatever effect you want to put, put them at the end and send from each of the channels that you want to have reverb, send to that reverb. So. I would say, I don't know, the vocals are going to have reverb, the pads are going to have reverb, make everything run on that channel. And at the very end of your mix, have a general sub-main that's going to receive everything. You can have metering plugins, see how your loudness is going. If you want to put a general effect on the whole mix, a general EQ, a general compressor, if you want to print your mix, that is really important. And obviously at the very end, your master channel that is just metering the loudness of your of your mix i hope that was not too painfully technical but that's how i would i mean yeah. <laughs> great well that was really clear um to kind of lay it all out in that procedural way thank you um and so if that's the the process you go through um what's the what's the next sort of level in terms of creating a really great mix well I think that a really great mix has different components, or I would say maybe different tips to it. The first one would be always have a reference. Always, always as a soloist or as a band, have a track or an album that you think this is how I want to sound. Obviously be realistic. If this album was recorded in like a massive church with beautiful natural 
acoustics, maybe try to look for one that is more similar to the process where you are right now. Mm. But I generally keep my reference track in my same session so I can think, mm, this kick is not sounding how I want it. How is it that I want it to go? How is it that I want it to sound? So I go back and I check with my ears and, okay, it's lacking this, it's having this extra. So d don't feel like you have to invent something new and just make new sounds. Of course, you can have several references and make a mix. And it's not about copying an artist or copying a sound engineer. It's learning from what's been done and what's good. And really just use your ears to create a mix that is balanced. And what I mean with balanced, I mean balanced in, um, let's say, like Y-axis in terms of volumes. Think of it, I always think of a sound engineer like a, like a conductor. So you're giving the spotlight to the specific instrument. You're bringing the audience attention to a specific part of the song. You're bringing it out. So make sure that's there. Make sure that your lead guitar is not being drowned by the other instruments in its solo, for example, in terms of loudness and um, frequency. Don't be scared to cut frequencies to make space for other things to come in. And in an x-axis, remember, we have left and right ears. We are in stereo. So remember that things can be placed in a 180 degree um, stage. And another really important factor, and it's a bit of a reflection on this, is loudness. Loudness is obviously how loud we perceive the, the mix to be. And this has been a trend that has been very polemic in the last years. Since basically the early 2000s, we've seen a phenomena in audio that things are just being louder and louder and louder since the introduction of this like Hollywood pop. Um, just the tracks have been insanely loud. And don't get me wrong, I love that music. We were just talking about Christina Aguilera coming yeah. to Pride and Bryson, and I love Christina, love Ricky Martin, Britney. But all the tracks are really loud. And what we're doing with this is we are taking away an element of expressivity that's really big in music that is dynamic range. So we have classical music, for example, if you've ever attended a concert, you have pianissimo, you have mezzo, you have forte, and you have all this range that is a key element in music expression. And if we're just making everything sound incredibly loud, we are just constantly playing in a triple F. Mm, we're absolutely. taking a big chunk of music expressivity and if you are interested in reading more about this from a sound perspective I recommend you to read about the loudness war by Bob Katz and he's come up with this problem and a way that he um, offers a metering system to, to fight it that's called the, the K system that's what I used to mix keep an eye on what meters you're using when you're mixing I use the K system and if I'm mixing for soundtrack and orchestral i try to mix with k20 so i have a really big range pop music k14 and podcast and spoken word and k12 it's up to you what system you choose but just keep in mind how as a sound engineer what you're doing is you are like a gatekeeper of music so you got the band and the recording bringing you amazing music hopefully and it's in your hands to either open that and give that to the audience in um respectful way and like um a way that truly reflects what the music intended or you can completely give a distorted image of what you received and completely mess it up so it's it's a big responsibility even though a lot of people don't think about the, the sound engineers in the process it's um 
Yeah. Yeah, that's true, isn't it? Um, I love that analogy, the gatekeepers of the music. <laughs> it's true, though. You're, you're representing effectively people's ears in, in, a, in a live setting. Um, exactly. But, but for recorded music. Yeah, absolutely. Exactly. And um, yeah, I, I think we can definitely think about the loudness in terms of how we're going to respect the musician's intentions, but also how we're going to train or not trained, but presented to audiences, because since this phenomena started to happen in early 2000s, it's been presented more and more that a group of people are shown a mix of one song and a mix A and mix B of the same song. And mix B is just the same song louder. And people immediately think, oh, mix B sounds better. And that is like, I've been part of that. I've also done this experiment. So it's good if we can be conscious as an audience of thinking louder is not always better also in terms of just our general health of like our listening mm. health it's good to be able to appreciate the softness and the dynamic range absolutely thank you that's uh that's very interesting isn't it the uh, the sort of hidden influence of the sound engineer which perhaps should be less <laughs> hidden uh, <laughs> being able yeah well to... i uh, my professors always said you know, a sound engineer does a good job when it goes by unnoticed. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> so if you watch a movie and you go, ah, oh, that was kind of strange what happened. Maybe something happened with the sound, then it didn't work. But I don't mm. think anyone ever leaves a movie going like, wow, did you listen to those dialogues, how they were mixed? Yeah. <laughs> you know, like... Some people do. More sound people engineers. Will listening to this. Yeah. <laughs> sound <laughs> engineers going with their family. Everyone listening to this now is going to go to their next movie and be like, wow, that dialogue. <laughs> exactly. I made my mom like really get obsessed about like um, folly sounds. So she was like, oh my God, those steps sound really real. And I'm like, I'm so proud of you. But that's just that. because I, I put her through <laughs> listening to a lot of the sessions I was mixing. Um, um, yeah, so that is the mixing process. And then when it's going to go to mastering, I would really suggest, first of all, when you're mixing, have consideration for your master engineer. Don't mix too close to clipping. Give them enough space, um, dynamic space, for them to be flexible and creative into how to bring your track to a commercial level. Um, if you're using the K system, that means mixing around the zero. Don't stay all the time super close to clipping. And I really suggest having an um, external mastering engineer, someone who's not you for two reasons. One, it's always good to have another pair of ears. You might get a bit frustrated with the mix so you've been doing it for so long that you're subjective. But if you have another pair of really educated ears, they might give you some insight that you just didn't pick up on. And secondly, I think mastering is a process that requires really good equipment because it's a process about just a chain of very high quality but slight processes, compressions that require really specific equipment. So if what you just have at home is a home setup, that's absolutely fine. But I would trust a master engineer who has the experience, the equipment and the extra pair of ears to take your track to that level. And yeah, I think that's it. That's how to, to get your track from the space that you're recording to handing it to your master engineer hopefully having a really well mixed and master track fabulous thank you so much that was really clear and um, you're welcome. very enlightening <laughs> i hope it wasn't too um technical or boring for non-sound engineers 
<laughs> we've all learned something, I think. Um, oh, thank you so much, Maria. It was not boring at all. Um, really, really interesting as always, and lovely thank to you. chat to you. Thank you so much um, for your for your time and expertise. All right, thank you. Thank you for having me as a guest, and yeah, continue to enjoy this really informative podcast. <laughs> thank you. Thank you.